Hello and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. This week we will be looking at issue number 523, December the 3rd, 1994, £1.40. Last week's episode of Kerrang! Back Issues, the Almighty were on the cover. I checked the stats for how well that uh, episode did. It didn't do as well as others. Also, I went back and checked the last time the Almighty were um, cover stars on Kerrang! And that one also didn't get as many listeners as <laughs> any of the other ones I've done. So I'm not going out here and blaming the Almighty, but I'm definitely going to say that when the Almighty are on the cover, it affects listener numbers. So let's hope there's no more Almighty on the cover anytime soon. I don't know how they got on the cover of Kerrang! anyway. I don't think they were really that big then. They just seemed like one of these bands to me that Kerrang! really, really pushed for, for some reason. Maybe they were friends. Maybe it's because Ricky Warwick was dating, or was he married to, um, Vanessa Warwick from Headbangers Ball? I, I think they were married. Yeah, of course they were married. She had the same name as him. <laughs> of course they were married. <laughs> Jesus. Forgive me for not having my brain turned on properly today. I had a bit of a bit of a day yesterday on Sunday. So I've been having these chest pains. It's nothing serious. I think I've pulled a muscle. But obviously when you have a pain in your chest, I have no other symptoms. That was it. I thought I was going to die. I thought the Grim Reaper was at my door. Uh, I came home to watch a football match, the heating was broken. So I had to uh, get call a plumber, uh, tried to fix the heating, I banged the boiler and it started working. So that was good. And then I uh, walked out and I got uh, shot on by a pigeon or a seagull. So <laughs> I wasn't having a very good day yesterday. I had a lovely evening with friends eating a roast dinner and drinking wine. So that was nice, but my God, what a day. Anyway, away from my very, very dull life, Cover stars for this week are Pearl Jam, the only interview, Pearl Jam, Eddie Vedder on Kurt, Success, and the new LP. Faith No More, LP exclusive. Therapy, Lacerate London, first UK tour live review. Page Plan and the band Grunge Couldn't Kill. Bonk Rock Shock, Exposed, John Bon Jovi and Cindy Crawford, and On the Road with Slayer. For me personally, this is a really good uh, copy of Kerrang! this week. You've got, yeah, the Slayer Live review, loads about punk, Offspring and Green Day, tons about Pearl Jam, which obviously I absolutely love. Um, if you would like to get in contact with us here at Kerrang! Back Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram at Kerrang! Back Issues, Twitter at Kerrang! Pod, and email kerrangbackissues at gmail.com. Let's start this week with a swift word from Phil Alexander, the editor. We kick off this issue on a sad note. Early last week, we heard of the death of three people who will be sadly missed by the members of the UK rock and metal community. Mama's Boys drummer Tommy McManus lost his long battle against leukemia. Similarly, former Kerrang! scribe and respected author Mark Putterford passed away after a long and painful illness. And former Cat People, the grip guitarist Mark King, died in a motorcycle accident. At times like this, there is very little you can add or say. It's more a time for reflection. With this tragic news in mind, it's hard to extol the virtues of this week's wodge of megaton metal mayhem. We could go on about the tongue-in-cheek look at the band Grunge Couldn't Kill on pages 38-41. Equally, we could boast about our no-hold-barred Pearl Jam analysis and Eddie Vedder's only interview on pages 48-53. Somehow, it would be churlish and insensitive. To conclude, we shall ask you to read this issue for yourselves and tell us what you think. In closing, on behalf of everybody at Kerrang! and throughout the rock world, we would like to send our condolences to the McManus, Putterford and Keane families. Their friends and acquaintances, our full respects will follow in next week's issue. Till then, stay clean. Phil Alexander, Editor. Free CD Clanger, so just underneath a swift word, Kerrang! have written, 
Apologies to all Kerrang readers who decided to redeem last issue's token which entitled them to their free identity Century Media CD. There was a delay with the stock reaching the shops and the CDs arrived in the listed stores on Thursday instead of Wednesday. Those of you who were met with blank looks when trying to claim your CD on Wednesday and still wishing to get your copy of Identity should send your token to Identity CD Offer Kerrang 52-55 Carnaby Street London W1V 1PF and we'll do our best to rush a one. The offer closes on December the 10th. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Starting this week with Mayhem, the hottest news in metal first, and Bon Jovi have officially parted company with bassist Alec John Such. The not-so-shock news was revealed exclusively to Kerrang! this week by band frontman John Bon Jovi, who stresses that the split was amicable. Alec was not pushed, he says. I don't want to speak on behalf of him, but it just comes a time when you don't feel like your lives are going the same way. Bon Jovi's not a life sentence for any of us, and I'm still friends with Alec. We're not hiring a replacement, says John, because it would be too difficult a procedure. We've still no idea who will be playing bass when we tour the UK next year. The band and stand-in session bassist Huey McDonald are currently locked away in Bearsville Studios in New York where John says work on their sixth album is going very well. We've never had so long to record an album and we only just started the final proper recording three weeks ago. I'm really pleased with how it sounds. Judging by what we've got down so far, it's going to be great. Slated for a Spring 95 release, the album will be preceded by a John Bon Jovi solo single. Please come home for Christmas through Jamco Mercury on December the 5th. Originally uh, recorded two years ago, the song appeared on the A Very Special Christmas 2 album and all proceeds from its sale will go to the Special Olympics charity. The single will be available as a two-track cassette backed with J, uh, JBJ composition I Wish Every Day Could Be Like Christmas. Originally a Keep the Faith 45 B-side, the CD adds an extra track Backdoor Santa which originally appeared on the 87 LP A Very Special Christmas. And the sensational video for Please Come Home for Christmas stars John and supermodel Cindy Crawford in a series of steamy clinches. Says John, who is no stranger to fruity festive photo philanderings, how did it all come about? I won a contest. I must be the luckiest guy in the world. I get to kiss Cindy Crawford for hours. Basically, the story for the video is about this couple who are no longer together and the guy is reminiscing about things. Of course, the woman he's pining over is Cindy. Rage Against the Machine explode back into action early in the new year with all the force of a boomerang. Well, Year of the Boomerang is the first new song Rage fans will get to hear from the LA foursome when it appears on the soundtrack to a forthcoming movie entitled Higher Learning. The film is directed by John Singleton and looks set to be released early next year. The soundtrack album itself is to be issued by Epic to coincide with the release of the film and aside from Rage it will also feature contributions from a number of other artists including rap giant Ice Cube. Natural Born Killers, Xavier Russell checks out the film You May Never See. Five Kerrang! rated film soundtrack Natural Born Killers, which features Nine Inch Nails, Jane's Addiction and L7 among others, has been in the shops a good few weeks now, but the film of the same name has so far been unable to get a certificate over here. The censors are in a flat, because in the States, where the film has been unreleased for some time, there have been a spate of copycat killings. I was lucky enough to catch Natural Born Killers at the London Film Festival, where tickets were changing hands for 100 quid each. So why all the fuss? God knows. 
as I personally found the film hysterically funny despite the fact that director Oliver Stone has virtually rewritten all of Quentin Tarantino's original dialogue. Not surprisingly, Tarantino has distanced himself from the film completely, which is sad because Stone has done a spectacular job. What violence there was is not particularly gory, and Stone always covers himself by injecting humour into the mix. Cheers barman Woody Harrison is very convincing with his heels have eyes bald head look, and so too is his mole Juliette Lewis who I normally can't stand, but a star turn was definitely Rodney Dangerfield who gives a truly wacko performance. It's America and Americans that have created the controversy that surrounds Natural Born Killers, and judging by the general thumbs up at the UK screening, I predict a January 95 release over here. Aerosmith, Therapy and Megadeth were among a host of international stars who gathered in Berlin last week for the first MTV European Music Awards. They joined the likes of Ace of Base, Bjork, Prince, Take That and supermodel Naomi Campbell at the lavish ceremony, which was beamed live into 239 million homes across the continent. Look out for a full no-holds-barred behind-the-scenes report from the event coming soon in Kerrang! A metal fan at Slayer's recent Wolverhampton Civic Hall show cheated death after jumping from the balcony. The stunt was typical of the LA Fresh Kings' controversial UK tour which was dogged by problems, including allegations that fans fell foul of heavy-handed security staff and at Brixton Academy in particular, the support band Machine Head played too early. As a result, thousands of people missed the Oakland Metal Mob's debut UK performances. At Wolverhampton, it's claimed that more than 200 fans were ejected from the venue many allegedly thrown out after being forced over the barrier in order to seek relief from a huge crowd surge. Angry Kerrang reader Haggis from Bristol claimed that he and his girlfriend were ejected because he complained to the security about their rough treatment of other fans. He also claimed that his girlfriend suffering an asthma attack after being thrown out. Had to wait 20 minutes for treatment. He has officially complained to both the Civic Hall and the local council. When Mayhem contacted Paul Roberts from Slayer tour promoters Phil McIntyre's office, he had this to say about the situation. It doesn't surprise me that you've had a complaint from someone in the Bristol area. Apparently there was a lot of trouble with three coach loads of fans. They rampaged through the venue terrorising everyone. Four security guards had to be posted behind the bar because these people were causing such havoc. There were a lot of fans ejected but mainly those who turned up on the coaches. As for the ones ejected for either stage diving or body surfing, all I can say is that the Civic Hall has an abundance of notices up warning that anyone coming over the barrier would be ejected. If a fan came over, they were warned not to do it again and sent back into the hall. If they did it a second time, then they were out. One fan dived from the balcony into the stalls and was lucky not to kill himself. It was after that incident that the security stepped up their operation. If some fans were forced over the barrier because of the crush and then thrown up, then all I can do is apologise. You have to understand that when you're a security guard getting hit in the head every minute, it can be difficult to differentiate between those who are looking to body surf or stage dive and those who are just being pushed forward against their will. Elsewhere, a number of fans have vehemently complained that heavy security at the Brixton Academy in London meant they missed Machine Head. They are demanding to know why the doors couldn't have opened earlier, why Machine Head weren't allowed to go on later than 7.30 and why it was necessary for the security staff to search everyone. Says Roberts, We'd have liked to open the doors earlier, but we delayed because Machine Head was sound checking. It was such a big show that they wanted to make sure they gave as good a performance as possible. The band actually went on at 7.45, which was as late as they could go on. As for the searching, that was done for everyone's safety and is a normal precaution. There's nothing we could do about that. 
The new Faith No More album, King For A Day, Fall For A Lifetime, has been completed in New York with producer Andy Wallace and is expected out in the UK during March 1995. It marks the first time the band have recorded out of their hometown and is also the first time they have worked with a producer other than Matt Wallace. The record also marks the recorded debut of guitarist Trey Spruant, who takes over from Jim Martin. Conditions within the studio were said by sources close to the band to be much easier than ever before, with a marked lack of tension, plus an air of amicability and ease not previously experienced by the band. I've always said that the tension we had was an unfortunate thing that happened, states bassist Bill Gould. It had nothing to do with helping the band get to where it was at. The absence of tension for me personally only made things better with regard to what we do. King for a Day is said to be a rounder, thicker, less jagged and more complete Faith No More album. I think it's fucking great, Gould gushes. The best thing we've done. I know I wouldn't say anything different, but after all the shit we've been through, it feels uh, good to like it so much. Records news now, and the release of Anathema's Pentecost free EP has been postponed until February. It will now be released through Music for Nations. The Black Crow's new single is entitled High Head Blues and is released by the American Recordings on January the 12th. Bon Jovi's Christmas single Please Come Home for Christmas will be released by Phonogram on December the 12th. This is taken from the charity compilation album A Very Special Christmas 2. A new video for the song was recently shot in LA. It's a racy effort and it'll be on your screen soon. Death, Chuck Schuldiner and Co issued their latest album Symbolic through Roadrunner in February. Dig, who are currently supporting therapy in the UK, issue a new single through MCA on December the 5th, its unlucky friend from the band's self-titled debut album. The second full studio album from Fear Factory will be released through Roadrunner in early spring. It's to be titled Demanufacture. Guns N' Roses' new single is the band's version of the Rolling Stones classic Sympathy for the Devil and will be issued by Geffen on December 28th. The song, previewed exclusively by Kerrang two weeks ago, is taken from the soundtrack to the horror movie Interview with a Vampire, which opens in the UK on January 20th, four days after the soundtrack album itself appears on Geffen. Aside from the Guns' number, however, the soundtrack features only instrumental music composed for the film by Elliot Goldenthal. L7 will issue a single titled Stuck Here Again through Slash London on February 6th. This release will coincide with UK live dates from the band, supported by Wall. Megadeth's new single, A Train of Consequences, is to be released by Capital on December 28th. Slayer uh, will be releasing a new single through American Recordings in January. The song will be titled Ditto Head. And Soundgarden will be releasing a new single, Fell on Black Days. Uh, that will be out uh, through A&M in January. Tour news and Apes, Pigs and Spacemen will play a one-off headlining date at the Croydon Cartoon on December the 7th. Carcass, the Mersey Metalers, will have the following support acts on their UK tour. Cubanate, all dates except London, Ilford Island on December 16th. Acrimony, Buckley Tavoli, December 1st. Morstis, Bradford, Rio 2nd. Skin Limit Show, Derby Warehouse 6th. Leicester Princess, Charlotte 17th. Nero Circus, Cardiff University 11th. Plymouth Cooperage 12th. Exeter Cavern Club 13th. And MTA, uh, Worthing Factory 14th. Reef, the Glastonbury Musos, currently to be spotted on the Sony Mini Disc TV ad, will play Newcastle Trinians on December the 13th and Glasgow Fix 2 on the 14th. Censor, their rescheduled dates will be as follows. Cardiff University, February 13th, Warwick Union 14th, Nottingham Rock City 15th, Kentish Town Forum 17th, Manchester Academy 18th. 
The New York Hardcore Bruisers, sick of it all, will be supported by Strife and Understand on their forthcoming UK tour. And finally, Wall, the ex-Scream mob, played Leeds, Duchess of York, December 12th and London Highbury Garage 13th. They then returned in February 95 as support to LA Grunge Girls L7 to coincide with the release of Wall's new LP titled Box Set. Mayhem America, the hottest US news as it happens, and we start this week with Don K in New York. We got an extremely advanced earful of the new Monster Magnet album this week, and man, is it a scorcher. The album is titled Dopes to Infinity and features more of the hallucinatory, monstrously heavy retro metal the band does so well. The 12 fuzz tone extravagances on the album are Dopes to Infinity, Negasonic Teenage Warhead, Look to Your Orb for a Warning, All Friends and Kingdom Come, Ego the Living Planet, Blow Em Off, Third Alternative, Eye Control, King of Mars, Dead Christmas, Master Burner and Vertigo. The album hits the stores in March, look out for more on Dave Windoff and his crew soon. Metal Fever has seemingly hit the massively popular stateside TV programme Late Night with David Letterman. In recent months, Letterman has featured acts like the Stone Temple Pilots and the Beastie Boys, and in the space of five days last week he hosted Grunge Wannabe's Candlebox and the Mighty Megadeth. The Death Boys gave a solid performance, but Letterman was either so taken or so amused by the name that he announced the band's arrival something like a dozen times during the course of the show, complete with their logo flashing across the screen. Now I wasn't there, but reliable sources report that during Steve the Duck Perry's concerts at the Beacon Theatre last week, Perry's red jacket, the one he wore while playing with Journey, was lowered to the stage from the ceiling, whereupon Perry began talking to it, you read that right, before donning it for a medley of Journey hits. No one's quite sure if the jacket said anything back to Steve. Finally, after hearing of the horrid Criminal Justice Act that has recently passed in the UK, I can say that many free thinkers and progressive types in the States are sympathising with your plight. The recent elections here in the US have resulted in an ultra-conservative Congress that's already threatening to put religious prayer in public schools forbidden by the Constitution and declare war on anyone who's not a normal American, which probably includes most fans of rock and roll and metal. We can't let these pompous asses grind us down. US News Extra. Warrant have finished off their uh, new album Ultraphobic which is due out next year on CMC. Pearl Jam have gone top 20 in the States with latest single Spin the Black Circle, the band's first 45 release in America. Uh, Andy Wallace, fresh from twiddling the knobs on Faith No More's new LP, is to produce Blind Melon's second album. Burning for Buddy is a tribute album to the late jazz drummer Buddy Rich. It's being put together by Rush drummer Neil Peart and one track will feature Guns N' Roses skinsman Matt Sorum. Lisa Johnson now in Los Angeles. Just 700 lucky record buyers in the UK will be able to get their hot little hands on a limited edition secret single by Star Children. Star Children may not ring a bell, but the star child in question is none other than Smashing Pumpkins' Billy Corgan. The track Disillusionment of Candor can only be found on the B-side of Songs About Girls, a damn fine tune by Chicago-based uh, group Catherine. The Catherine track was produced by Corgan and it fucking rocks. TVT Records only pressed a thousand copies of the record and 700 have been shipped to England. You lucky people. Speaking of producers, the awesome wicked bad man at the knobs, Butch Vig, is producing Soul Asylum's follow-up to Grave Dancers Union. Vig has previously produced such great records as Smashing Pumpkin, Sonic Youth and Nirvana's Nevermind. This as-yet-to-be-titled album marks the first in Soul Asylum's history without long-standing drummer Grant Young. Apparently, Young has opted for a less rock and roll lifestyle and is back in his native Minneapolis. 
As predicted here a few issues ago, Bay Area Punkers ranted have sold their soul and signed the major label Big Bucks deal with Epic Records. You don't suppose it helped that Epic had previously put out records by The Clash, their favourite band, do you? Many fans of Rancid are surprised that the group jumped ship from the highly successful Epitaph label, whose band Offspring still have their album Smash in the top 5 after more than 25 weeks on the Billboard chart. Offspring, incidentally, are currently outselling both Aerosmith and Tom Petty here in America. Beavis, you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! We now move on to concerts, and the first concert reviewed this week is Therapy and Joyrider, live at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, London, Saturday, November 26th. Reviewed by Chris Watts, this gets a high voltage out of 5, 4 out of 5. It has to be a bargain package at 9 quid. You don't have to buy any of the 18 separate merchandising items on offer, but you can take one good look around this sweat-drenched capacity crowd, realise that tomorrow night is sold out as well, and figure that if you're not into therapy, yep, then you might as well forget it. This is what people call a phenomenon. Opening just such a show must be a daunting prospect, yet Joy Rider borrow as much from the headliners as they have stolen from the undertones, and survive admirably as a result. They are chapter one in the great pop bible. Long hair, striped t-shirts, cheeky Irish accents, and three minute songs of tuneful teenage noise. Right now, they look a little geeky on a stage this big, but there's sufficient substance here to guarantee at least a couple of minutes of future celebrity. In comparison, Therapy are armed to the back teeth with an entire arsenal of user-friendly assets. They've written some of the most addictive and blindingly obvious rock tunes ever, and yet they are not skin. There's only three of them, and yet there is zero musical indulgence. Andy Cairns can play the sensitive, broken-hearted martyr, and yet he isn't Eddie Vedder. Therapy can be perfect. This is not a truly classic Therapy performance. It is not Donington this year, or the File Festival in 93. Andy Cairns will later admit that Therapy are at a crossroads and testing the waters for their next vinyl assault. Much of the buffoonery and pantomime has been shelved. There is no sign of Cairns' evil Elvis, no chat, it is a straightforward and apparently sober delivery. The fact that Screamager is placed so early into the set is a mark of Troublegum's instant appeal. The sinister undertow that shades the likes of Knives, Face the Strange and Nowhere might be diluted on stage and replaced by the band's urgent delivery. But Therapy are still a great deal darker than their genial public facade. This is stuff about boy-girl psychotics, masturbation, serial killers and unsafe sex, and yet they are not Slayer. Therapy know they have to progress and leave some of this boisterous buzz pop behind them. Tonight it is me versus you which proves that there is life beyond Troublegum. In the hands of a more cumbersome band, it would be a giant stadium ballad. As it is, magically transformed by Martin McCarrick's cello and a fragile guitar riff. It sounds like Aerosmith Dream On without the original sludge, histronics and sheer musical baggage. No one can argue with Trigger Inside and Stop It You're Killing Me as show closers. There might be more irony in the latter song than Andy Cairns intended, but Therapy are still the most exciting British live band at this level. They deserve everything. Next review is for Guar, live at the Trocadero San Francisco, Tuesday, November the 8th. Reviewed by Stefan Chirazzi, this gets static out of 5, which is a 3 out of 5. Guar, the band Monty Python would have invented for a sketch about heavy metal, are one of America's most successful pantomime acts. They pull into town, play to a few thousand people and shove off again. They are cool because they are uncool, and they shoot and squirt shit all over the place. Like Danny LaRue, Basil Brush and Are You Being Served repeats Gua are funny for about 17 minutes. Odorous Yurangus, Slymenstra et al. looked like a very cool scene from a very bad B-movie. The huge prosthetic heads, 
the clubs, the shoulder pads like paving stones, and don't forget the fluids. Half the show is spent marvelling how amazing it is that people so heavily dressed can play their instruments. The greatest moment of the show comes far too quickly. 14 minutes in, in the first series of wrestling bouts with dummies, Slymenstra faces off against OJ Simpson. Fantastic head punching leads to blood spurting. We revel in America's latest superstar misfit getting some back, while a fast metal riff clangs in the background. The show never reaches its sleazy, vaudevillian heights again. Behind the copious masks and squirting bombs, Gua are merely a very entertaining joke on a short-term basis. But they need some truly great songs to elevate them beyond world's greatest novelty metal band status. Man does not live by shooting juices and bleeding orifices alone. Next review is for Counting Crows and Cracker, live at the City Hall Newcastle, Monday, November the 7th. Reviewed by Liam Sharves, this gets static out of 5, 3 out of 5. With an enormous 10-gallon hat perched on his head and drawling even more laboriously than usual, it's as if David Lowry is signalling that Cracker have their country heads on tonight. In deference to the headliners today audience, only uh, almost hit low is here to remind us that this enigmatic troupe have a noisy side. Even on cruise though, the tightest, punchiest rhythm section on the block and Johnny Hickman's economic soloing leave barnyard stombers like Lonesome Johnny Blues, Take Me Down to the Infirmary and the brilliant Euro Trash Girl with a shit all over their boots and a great big smile. Tremendous. Dynamic is not an adjective that can easily be applied to a Counting Crow show. The band might as well uh, still be in bed. Only the arrival of the hit Mr. Jones after 50 minutes finally breaks the stillness and even then it's hardly a riot. It's a mellow vibe and there's nothing wrong with that so long as those big songs are there to hold the interest. Anna begins and perfect blue buildings however wander hooklessly while round here is like Chinese water torture. Time and time again, conversely, is wonderful, and the upbeat Rain King is as welcome as an ice cream van in the desert. Adam Duritz's voice has lost some of the whining quality that affects the album, and his band are masterfully note perfect. And as many people clearly enjoy this gig, that's obviously enough for some. Hardly rock and roll Nirvana though. Next review is for Melvin's and China Drum live at the Highbury Garage, London. Saturday, November 19th, reviewed by Meanie, this gets high voltage out of 5, 4 out of 5. If China Drum were from London, they'd have been splashed on the cover of the trendy papers by now. As it is, being from Tyneside, they've been slower to garner much attention. After a sellout tour with Green Day, a few more gigs like this ought to be enough to lift them off the breadline. Great Fire, Biscuit Barrel and Simple are chunks of perfect pop punk worthy of comparisons with Snuff and the similarity extends to their penchant for crap cover versions, deserving of a good spanking and the same undeering but workable vocalist drummer trio lineup. Looking decidedly larger than life, Melvin's launch a savage assault upon area drums. King Buzzo's Barnet is easily the equal of Shane Embry's, while Dale Crover customarily strips down to his swimming trunks at the drum kit. Nice. While the distinctly cooler Mark Dutrum leisurely takes care of bass duties. It's not just the bass player that's changed since the Melvins' indie days though. With new LP Stoner Witch, they've developed, amongst other things, an uncanny ability to pen humongous tunes. Queen, where their traditional chugging doom meets melody head-on, is the perfect fusion of Melvins' old and new. Alice in Chains might kill for Revolve, but here it is bashed out with the band's tree-trunk drumstick seal of brutality and sinewy sophistication. Sweet Willie Rollbar takes them into more straight ahead, uh, almost Jesus Lizard territory, which is cheap frills by their usual standards. And more familiar dirge torture comes by way of At The Stake. Trichrome meets Blue Cheer fast forwarded two decades. But major label status doesn't seem to have lifted them out of the third division as far as UK attendances are concerned. 
Could it be that they're now too metal for the noise nicks and too futuristic and surreal for metal? Next in Kerrang we have a four page punk special, two pages about Offspring and two pages about Green Day. Smash it up! Californian Yobs Offspring make punk rock to break windows too, but somehow they've wound up in the US top 5 with their million selling smash album. Is it a sellout? Stefan Chirazzi sizes up Offspring's punk cred. Offspring singer Dexter Holland ain't losing any sleep over the great punk controversy. Dexter's band are no overnight sensation, they've been doing this for 10 years. Part of me wants to say, hey, we didn't jump on a punk rock bandwagon, Dexter draws as he relaxes at home in Orange County, California. If people are looking for credentials, we're pretty intact. Even my car's kind of punk rock. It's a 1989 Toyota pickup. I've slept in it many, many times. We toured the country once in it. It's done about 220,000 miles with the same engine. You've seen those Toyota ads where people tell you how good their trucks lasted? Well, I called them about mine to see if I could get a free truck and they said they weren't currently doing those commercials. Now I can afford a new one. I don't want to give it up. Now, does that give us more punk rock credibility or what? Dexter recalls the late 80s in Southern California, a time when Offspring stood their punk rock ground while others wavered. I remember when that kind of glam GNR thing was going on and a lot of people changed musical styles because punk wasn't really going on anymore. But it was never a question with us. I just couldn't imagine us playing a different kind of music. Our music just comes from us wanting to play. We're inspired by the kind of music that gets you all pumped up when you hear it. Stuff that makes you feel like going out and breaking the window. So punk inspired you to smash things up, Dexter. As a matter of fact, yes. Punk rock made me do it. I suffered Orange County punk rock overload. The other thing was that punk bands wrote about things I'd never known anybody else write about. Things I could relate to like frustration, boredom, not fitting in. Yes, folks, as with any multi-platinum star, there was a time when the world was a lonely, shitty place for Dexter Holland. I felt like I was surrounded by jocks and cheerleader types, he groaned. I couldn't relate to that. You may laugh, but Orange County is the land of steroid abuse, white meatheads and Reagan-esque prune faces. They ain't big on punk rock. There are lots of big lawns and barbecues. It's a stable environment, but it breeds boredom and a real rebellious spirit in the kids because you get tired seeing that day in, day out. It's like living in a factory. Like every other suddenly huge band in America, Offspring are bugged by the losers who feel they must act out literally whatever their heroes say. Dexter explains, On our last album we had a song called Burn It Up. It was a tongue-in-cheek story of an arsonist. Then some kid bought us a charred spray paint can, saying it was left over from a building he'd burned for us. Wait a minute. But if these kids couldn't work out that it was a joke, we're not responsible. But isn't punk rock responsible for passing on the message to our youth? Don't offspring feel the pressure of a few million teenagers willing them to be the next generational spokesman? Well, you can't let the outside turn you into something you weren't in the first place. I'm still going to say the same idiotic things like I said before. That's the only way to be true to myself and true to what we're about as a band. If people chastise us for it, then I guess that's the way it's going to have to be. I really don't know how else to handle it. Dexter Holland isn't easily phased. Well, geez, he chuckles. We could be over by the time this issue comes out. You know, there seems to be a group of people who decide that you'll be a big band. It seemed like all of a sudden people decided we would be this big band when we hadn't changed from yesterday. It's very transient if you're basing your existence on how many albums you've sold, how many you'll sell in the future, and if you can maintain that stuff, then you're in for a big fall down the line. Dexter Holland is too sus to be bothered when people call offspring punk pop sellouts. I really don't know what you can do about it, he sighs. To a lot of people, if you're on the radio and on MTV, then you're not good anymore. You must be a sellout. Some people have written us off, but there's others who haven't because we're still on an indie label, so think we're okay. I just think that both judgement scales are invalid. What it should come down to is, do you like the record? That should be it. 
Talking to Dexter, you get the impression that maybe Offspring really are punk shock horror. Dexter isn't very PC. I never went in for all that socially conscious stuff, he shrugs. A couple of us are vegetarians. I'm not, but it wasn't a big issue, so it wasn't stuck in ab. Biog. It's not worth preaching about. I wouldn't force it on you just as I hope you wouldn't force it on me. When we write our lyrics, I like there to be some kind of message, but I think a band is their number one for entertainment. The music is the most important thing, the lyrics are secondary. I hated bands who preached on stage, that whole uptight straight edge mentality. Those bands who stop shows because of the stage diving on washing. For God's sake, you're meant to be there to have a good time, that's why I'm there. The problem with straight edge was that punk rock started out as a reaction, but then they set up their own code of rules. Ultimately, it became the right wing of punk rock. The rules were even more firmly established, and that went against what I thought punk rock was supposed to be about. If Offspring have taken some stick from the straight edge purists, the years other punk rock superstars Green Day have taken even more. It seems as though people have pretty much written off Green Day completely and that they aren't quite decided about us, says Dexter. But as time goes on, I think they'll write us off as well. It's a shame. Green Day left their label lookout because they'd outgrown them. Now they're selling millions of albums. I don't think being on a major label is necessarily bad, just as I don't think being on an indie is necessarily good. Personally, I've been screwed by an indie label. You can get fucked whichever side of the fence you're on. We don't want to be the poster boys for punk rock, he snorts. We're just playing music. Some people have noticed that we've tried to do things the right way. We haven't jumped into arenas, we haven't done the big tours we were offered. We haven't increased our ticket prices too much, we haven't plastered ourselves all over TV. We don't feel comfortable doing all the things other bands do. I don't know what we'll do in the future, but I'm not going to do anything because it's cool or uncool. We'll do things because we want to. It's not like we're going to turn our backs on the people who liked us before and run our business like we were Kiss. So don't scour your local Woolies for offspring lunchboxes just yet, kids. Next we have a piece entitled Free Chord Wonders. Californian geek punks Green Day are one of 1994's biggest success stories. Meany tries to find out why. Punk rock, the second coming. It all began the week Nirvana smells like teen spirit swagging its ugly way up the billboard chart and flipped its finger in the face of powering, airbrushed, glammy, leather and lace corporate rock pussies. It only took someone to shed some light on the matter, to reveal that so much of what had passed for ballsy hard rock was in fact a load of up its own ass bogus old wank and the floodgates were wide open. Well, theoretically, at least. While Nirvana pressed panic buttons in the industry, A&R persons were sent to rummage through 7-inch singles and copies of Punkoid, Tastings, Flipside and Alternative Press in back alley indie record emporiums in their quest for the next big thing. A few business luncheons later, and a legion of underground bands signed on the dotted line with the major label execs all present and grinning. Somehow, it looked unlikely that the Nirvana phenomenon would repeat itself, that is, until the cavalry arrived at the last minute in the unlikely shape of Billy Joe vocals guitar, Trey Cool drums and Mike Dern bass. Three gutter snipes from Berkeley, California, calling themselves Green Day. Dookie, the band's major label debut, has now clocked up sales of something like 2 million copies in the States and is still in the US Billboard Top 20 after 40 weeks in the chart. Their sudden rise from a sloppy beachcore band signed to the terminally underground lookout record stable to sloppy beachcore superstars is down to their rampaging sense of pop sus. The kind of sus that has seen tracks like Welcome to Paradise and Basket Case dent Kerrang's own singles chart, and made Green Day one of the most eagerly awaited acts on the bill at this year's 25th Woodstock Anniversary Mudfest. Despite the ever-increasing sales and adulation in a cramped dressing room somewhere on tour, drummer Trey Cole looks like he wouldn't have two hapneys to rub together. When he talks about stateside Green Day fever, you'd think he was relating something that was happening to another person. We've been playing these huge places in the States between 20 and 100,000 people. Woodstock was like 300,000. It's completely mad. Just like a sea of people. A bunch of specks instead of a few faces. 
Make no mistake about it, America has gone Green Day nuts. Green Day's recent decision to play a free gig at a Boston shopping plaza is a fine example of their impact. A crowd of around 4,000 people had anticipated. It turned out to be 4,000 going on 10,000. Needless to say, the situation got ugly, rapidly. The police were getting beaten up and stuff. They were tear gassing the crowd and all these things. Next, they're announcing Green Day has left the building. Green Day has left the building. It was fucking funny, says Trey with a cheeky grin. The standard Green Day gig being a fairly chaotic, setless free affair prone to request sessions, instrument swapping, silly cover versions and general fucking about, it's hard to imagine the threesome soliciting that kind of mass appeal and playing to a stadium crowd. So how do they deal with it? You've got to upset people to get by. It's really incredible when you're playing and you look out into the crowd and you can see seven different slam pits. Seven fucking pits out as far as you can see everyone partying. It's like wow. We're nice when we're over in England, but when we're in the States we tend to go off a little more because we can find to our dressing room. If we go out in the crowd at all, we're totally hounded and everyone's yelling autograph, autograph and we're like fuck you. So we tend to stay backstage and hang out with each other. So we tend to wreck the backstage areas in the States quite a lot, as well as hotel rooms. When we get them, wreck them. We glance around the room strewn with discarded crisp packets, a few empty cans, bottles, some squashed grapes and an overturned dish of nuts. Phew. Rock and roll. You know how to get televisions drunk, asked Trey, as if he's about to illustrate his dressing room wrecking antics. You pour enough beer in the telly, it'll get so drunk it'll pass out. One started smoking one time, but never pour a beer into a telly with a canned beer. Always use a bottle. You need the insulator. Ever pissed on an electric fence? It's like getting kicked in the nads. It's the worst. All the gonad goad in the side, it's hard to tell how much of Green Day's behaviour can be put down to honest-to-goodness naivety. On the one hand, what else would a jackpot-winning scruffy punk kid do stuck in a posh hotel room? On the other hand, when Trey starts to talk about the desperate need to piss people off, you begin to realise there's a little bit of business punk about Green Day. For instance, they're reluctant to be interviewed by any magazine but corporate rock US glossy Rolling Stone is okay. Hmm. Ultimately though, who cares as long as they keep making great records? For the time being, whatever the underground ethics being debated by pogoing punk purists, Green Day are playing all their cards right and their popularity knows no bounds, as their mailbag testifies. I go crazy when I start going through our mail, says Trey. I want to marry you. I love you. You're so cool. Shit. No one bothers to write to us if they hate us. We've got someone answering our mail full time now. They have to pull out the ones we think of from our friends and stuff, or they might be getting a letter back saying join the idiot club or something. That's what we've got instead of a fan club, an idiot club. If you want to join it, you're an idiot, straight up. Let's see how stupid you really are. Send us 20 bucks and see what you get. I don't know if I want to be a bigger in England, says Trey suddenly, as if a realisation has dawned upon him. It's a relief to be in England. People are really cool. It's like it was for us two years ago. When you're done playing, people are like, good show, thanks. Then they take off. In the States, if a Green Day fan sees me or Billy or Mike hanging out, then they'll instantly start hanging out and they'll start bothering you and trying to talk to you. That's so annoying to me. At the same time, you want to meet cool people and hang out with cool people. And all the coolest people just fuck off right after the show because they're, they're all these teenagers, idiots trying to see us. It makes us look like a big groupie band or something. And we're not at all. You want to be like Fagazi main man Ian Mackay and go, All you guys are acting like children. I wish we had a little bit more control over it like Fagazi or someone like that. Trey is unable to suggest a good reason why Green Day, out of all the poppy hardcore bands past and present, should have been singled out for this ridiculous level of adulation. Because they're not as ace as our sea selfers. Whatever the reason, one thing is certain, the recipe behind Green Day's popularity is simple. We just play simple shit, concludes Trey. You could pick up a guitar and play a Green Day song without worrying too much about technique. It's all three chords. Simplicity is the essence for success, the need for real music. People are starved of music. Ace of bass, the grid, what are these things that are on the telly all the time? Fucking complete shit. People are starved for real music, human shit. 
More Sex Pistols than Erasure, and you can't argue with that. Communication now, and Karang has gone back to two pages of letters from angry nettlers. Thank God for that. Letter of the week begins, I have just seen Slayer destroy Belfast. The crowd was totally psyched up and even when MTV were interviewing Slayer on stage, the place went apeshit. When Downset walked on stage, a few people were wondering what they would be like, including me. But by the time they finished their set, the whole place was bouncing to the rhythm. Then the biggest band of the year appeared, with Rob Flynn's request for everyone to pogo to the fucking ceiling. Machine Head tore the place to pieces. What was left of it? Slayer blew away with favourites like Rain in Blood, Angel of Death, War Ensemble and Seasons in the Abyss, and finished with an apeshit version of Chemical Warfare. It was well worth the six year wait for the heaviest tour in eons. Darren Hamill, County Andrew. And for being patient for six whole years, here's your much coveted Kareng Prize, a delectable cap. Editor. Thank you for the brilliant article on the Criminal Justice Bill issue 520. What a complete and utter load of shite it is. How it ever got past the second reading is beyond me. It just goes to prove the extent to which our government is made up of a load of narrow-minded, stereotypical fascist tossers. Probably the most effective way of campaigning against this is through demonstrations, which is now against the law. Of course, letters can be sent to the government, but who is to say they get read? People are much harder to ignore than a piece of paper. The Criminal Justice Bill is a complete violation of our rights and is just another way for the establishment to protect themselves. There is no way that the government can be allowed to get away with banishment of such things as the Monsters of Rock, Glastonbury and Finsbury Park Festivals. What will be next? The banishment of music altogether? Roll on the day when real people will run the country, but then again, pigs might fly first. Leanne Warren from Stapleford. I'd just like to write to say thanks for the laugh that your Best of British Issue 520 article gave me. My favourite bit was the part about skin being big in the UK but they're working on G Germany, France, Italy and Japan. What about the US and pretty much anywhere else? Hilarious, I loved it, cheers. Terrorvision's red plastic disaster, Birmingham. I'm writing to thank all the staff at Kerrang for taking the time to provide us readers with the brilliant cassette with issue 521. I'd thoroughly enjoyed all of the tracks on the tape, but I'd have to say my favorite was Do I Need This by Apes, Pigs and Spacemen, with Widowmaker coming a close second. Is there any prospect for making these tapes a more regular thing with Kerrang? And how about making the excellent Kilowatt supplement a more regular feature? Just picture it. The usual Kerrang including the features of Kilowatt with a tape of the best new music on the cover. That would be the best metal publication to end all metal publications. Daniel Trigger, Bromsgrove. Gagging for a shagging. We know you think the bloke from Baby Chaos, Chris Gordon, looks like a total school kid. That's what the reviewer of the Terrorvision gig wrote, but we think he's fucking gorgeous and that the band's great. We've seen them twice on tour with Terrorvision who were fucking great too, and we met Chris in person but we didn't have a camera to take a photo. So please would you unfuck our day by giving us a nice picture in Kerrang. Mandy and Kate, Haxley. What the hell is Jason Arnop's problem? Twice in a row he slagged off albums by Brutal Truth and Bolt Thrower, giving them, in my opinion, unfair reviews. Just because he may not like them, that doesn't mean to say that the people who would buy the albums, the dedicated death metal fans, wouldn't as well. The bands are, after all, making music for them and not for some sad little bastard. Perhaps he should change his name from Jason Arnop to Jason Arsup. Kevin Sharp's vocal cords, Blegarai. So we're calling it sleaze now, are we? Issue 521. Yeah, glam could offend some of our more macho male readers. Yeah, sleaze sounds good. Still an element of grunge in there somewhere. Yeah, that'll do. Don't get me wrong, I'm well into it, but please don't apologize for it. It's okay to like this sort of music. I have for years. There's no need 
to package it into an acceptable commodity for grunge fans to gradually slip into without losing face. It really doesn't matter what you look like or what you call it. Just like what you like and don't be ashamed of it. Dave Cardiff. Who the hell is Tom Petty, you ask? Issue 520. Well, I'll tell you who he bloody well is. A god. He came to fame back in 77 with a debut Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers LP, which spawned the classics American Girl and Breakdown. Consequent albums have uh, given us many more great songs like Refugee and Don't Come Around Here No More. Admittedly, since falling under the influence of Jeff Lynne and Bob Dylan in The Travelling Wilburys, his output has suffered. But check out his early back catalogue and discover the true genius of Tom Petty. Dave Grohl should be honoured, he's not worthy. The genius of Walshie, Main Road. Van Halen supporting Bon Jovi. God, even writing the name makes me feel sick. On their UK dates? Fuck off. Eddie and his fellow gods of metal should crush these puny wussmeisters beneath their boots. Can things really be so bad for Van Halen that they've been driven to such depths? Eddie, do yourself a favour and sort it out. Claudia Schiffer's underpants from Devon. Sure and Curly's. I agree with Chris Robinson's comments regarding censorship, but why is it that whenever I see the Black Crows album cover, I still want to cringe? Bring out the EMAC. AM, Edinburgh. Thanks to Warrior Soul for spending time with us after the SFX gig in Dublin on November 10th. Warrior Soul are a great band and deserve more recognition. Ursula, Nicola, Brenda and Julie from Galway. Ill communication. Dead people are cool. Punk metal king Slayer are always sounding off about death, serial killers and Satan. But what's really going on in their heads? And are Slayer really more punk rock than Green Day? Morat gets all the answers. There is no alcohol on sale at Dublin's SFX Hall, apparently because the venue is still owned by the church. It's kind of ironic then that Slayer, Satan's own choice on Desert Island Discs, should play their first dates over here since Donington 92 in a place named after a saint, St Francis Xavier. In this rough part of town, Slayer stuff out the last flicker of godliness with a hellfire light show and blasts of blasphemy like South of Heaven and Hell Awaits. While those members of the audience not beating the crap out of each other have their hands raised, fingers pointed like horns for the sign of the devil. The tour, named after their current album, is called Divine Intervention. Backstage is no place for the pure. The dressing room is silent apart from the ringing in your ears, but it's occupied by guitarist Kerry King, the human pitbull with a shaven, tattooed head, Guitarist Jeff Hanneman, the sullen blonde-haired stormtrooper of noise, powerhouse drummer Paul Bostaff, whose unblinking psycho stare evokes Charles Manson, and bassist vocalist Tom Araya, who, er, uh, giggles rather a lot. Having signed a few autographs for the faithful who waited in the cold, Slayer head back to a plush hotel and stay up drinking most of the night. During one drunken conversation, it transpires that Araya and Hanneman are Rottweilers called Damien and Rommel, respectively. Next morning, with hangovers from hell, the band take the train north across the border to Belfast for the next show. We're supposed to be travelling first class, but much to the relief of the other first class passengers, there isn't enough room for the full Slayer entourage. The band even have to carry their own luggage. I'm disappointed, Bellows King, citing a line from a fish called Wonder, but obviously not giving a flying fuck. He presses a little black box that spits recorded lines from Beavis and Butthead. This sucks, her her her, it announces. Kerry King likes Beavis and Butthead. He has a butt head, bookmark, and a badge that says dead people are cool. Behind King's doom and gloom image lurks a surprisingly dry sense of humour. Slayer settled down for the train ride by donning Disman headphones. From a large collection, King picks Pantera's Far Beyond Driven, but halfway through changes it for tour support act machine heads burn my eyes, then headbang silently. Araya sings Bruce Springsteen tunes rather distressingly and reads a book called Jesus, A Life by A.N. Wilson. Know your enemy, I guess. But how well do they know their competition? 
It's been a long time since Slayer toured. Things have moved on and a bunch of new heavy bands are popular. Isn't it rather a risk taking someone like Machine Head out on tour when they've got such a big vibe going on at the moment? We've got a bigger vibe, Shrugs King. I like Machine Head a lot. That's the only new band that I really give a shit about. And I'd rather someone of significance open for us because it makes our show that much better as a whole. That should tell you something about Slayer Smiles Around. We're not afraid of anything. Some kid asked me the same question, you know. Don't you think they could blow you away? I looked at him and said, nah, I don't think so. So far, no one has. But bands have obviously taken ground from you. The only reason that happened is because we weren't around the Pines King. If we'd been around, nobody would say shit. Somebody's got to take Slayer's spot while Slayer's not around. I understand that. But I don't fear it, and I don't think any differently because of it. I don't think of it as making up ground. We're not just playing the same size venues we did four years ago. Because back then we had 10 years of momentum going. That said, Slayer are no longer the most extreme band on the planet. Do they think they will ever become old school like Judas Priest, Deep Purple, etc? Well, there comes a time, Nods King. It's got to happen, but I think we've stretched the limits of listenability. That's why I don't listen to any death metal bands. They sound all the same to me. You've got a singer fucking growling. Tom has identity. When you hear Tom sing, you know it's him. When you hear these guys sing, it sounds like 10 other bands. Kerry King is also mightily unimpressed by the current US punk explosion. What do you call punky sneers? Offspring or a pop band? That's crap. I'm not quite as impressionable as these little kids. It's just fucking pop with a different tinge. It ain't punk. That kind of shit bugs me. I don't care what people call shit, but don't call something like that punk, because I know what punk is. When I saw Downset, I thought, fuck man, these guys are kind of heavy punk. I dig that shit. Slayer joined forces with Ice-T on a medley of three tracks by UK punk yobs they exploited for the Judgment Night movie soundtrack and the noise was more punk rock than most of these supposed punk bands. Oh fuck yeah, Beams King. More snarl than smile. Hands down, Rick Rubin, producer of Divine Intervention and head of Slayer's American record label, went to MTV in the States and said, You think Green Day are punk? Slayer's the original punk band. Play them. So they started playing us. We're definitely a metal punk kind of thing. Alongside Rose Tattoo and Motorhead, Slayer were one of the few metal bands it was cool for punks to like. Half the audience at Slayer's debut London show at the Marquee in June 85 were punks. Now it's a cool thing size around. They've managed to commercialise punk. At one time, everybody hated it. They fucking banned all these awesome punk bands. Yet here you are getting these stupid ass commercial pop punk bands and right off the bat they're selling millions because they're being thrown out to the public. My favourite thing to listen to is music of attitude, says Kerry. That's why I like Machine Head. When Rob Flynn sings, he's got the attitude of a 20 foot tall motherfucker. Parents are never going to like what their kids are listening to, muses Tom. Most parents are always going to hate what we do. Kids should be able to listen to what they want, and if their parents think it's cool, that's great. We have a ballad on the new album, 213. It's pretty dull, he chuckles. Serenity and Murder is another ballad, and Sex, Murder, Art, that's a hell of a ballad. There's nothing like the intensity of a Slayer show, he adds more seriously. There's a lot more bands that are heavy, but we're intense. So much so that the show carries a health warning. Apparently, Slayer's strobe lights are a danger to epileptics. A real show just adds to the excitement and the intensity. You get more for your money, says Kerry. I think we could do it without that, but I like to see lights. Even when I'm on stage, I like to see shit flashing around me because it gets me into it too. Aren't the warnings just hype though to add excitement? No, insists King. When you buy video games, you get a disclaimer in case somebody gets fucked. Whether you read them or not, they're each one got one. Add Zareya, we've just protected ourselves because our high intensity strobes can cause epileptics to go into seizures. I didn't even think of it until the management brought it up the day before we played Kerry Admits. I mean, you've got to put on a hell of a show, but you've got to protect your ass. Now we have to tell Paul not to throw his sticks out, to hand them off the edge of the stage. That sucks, you know. I used to like to see somebody throw a fucking stick off the cymbal out into the crowd. That's just cool shit, man. But I remember one time when I threw a guitar pick. It hit some dude in the head and he got pissed off and wanted to kick my ass. All for a fucking pick. 
What he didn't like, a ray of giggles again, is when it landed on his forehead. Everyone else reached to grab it, so he got punched a few times. I think that's what pissed him off. In Belfast, no one is pissed off. Just craziest Slayer fans are always crazy. The gig is filmed for MTV Headbangers Ball. Back at the hotel, the band invite a fan in from the cold and drink until the early hours of the morning. No one understands what the fan is talking about. Slayer must meet some real loonies on the road. When we did the in-store run, we came across a lot of crazy fuckers screaming and yelling, says Tom. They just don't know how to relax or calm down. But after they hang out for more than a minute, they're surprised because we're just casual, explains King. We don't care if kids hang out with us if they're mellow and don't just go Slayer, Slayer, Slayer for 20 minutes. It's like, chill out, have a beer. Are Slayer approachable? When kids approach us, they always seem a little nervous, confesses Araya. I think they're kind of apprehensive because they don't know what we're going to be like or what we're going to say. But then, when they realise we're just hanging out, they get comfortable, which is cool. I prefer them to just hang out and not ask a million questions. Man, shut up. If you want to hang out, just hang out. Don't ask stupid questions. King scratches his shaven head and laughs. That's what magazines are for. Poster power this week. Uh, seven pages of pin-up action. The posters this week are Carcass, Therapy's November 94 tour poster, Freak of Nature, John Bon Jovi and Cindy Crawford, and The Black Crows. I'm not sure if I mentioned this at the start of this episode, but there is no singles this week, so let's move on to albums. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record that's so heavy it couldn't get off the turntable. The first album reviewed this week is entitled Dissident by Pearl Jam. Reviewed by Mike Pig, this gets 4Ks. In the early hours of Bank Holiday Monday, April 4th, 1994, Pearl Jam plugged in and played to the world. Only the few thousand who had crammed into Atlanta's legendary Fox Theatre actually saw the band, but a satellite link to just about every country in the world tuned millions into Radio Pearl Jam, and Seattle's prodigal sons injected fire and fury into homes from here to Japan. On the night, it was pure magic. Ten and Verses were played almost in their entirety in a 22-song cluster of grunge-tinged gems. You were there. Close your eyes and you could see the stage. The lights, Eddie Vedder's cheeky grim, yeah, on the night it worked like a bastard. Here on this collection of free import CDs, the whole concert is laid down for repeat performance. Pick up CD1 and you can counter through Even Flow or Why Go or sway to the gentle caress of surprise gig opener release. Or you can whack on CD2 and tap your feet to Animal. In fact, you can do whatever you want over and over again. And there's the rub. As a whole, as it happened, Pearl Jam Live at Atlanta Fox Theatre was a one-off, a treat, an event. And while this CD is certainly invaluable to anyone who missed the broadcast, something is lost in translation. The track listing for this glorified version of a CD single is immense. You've all the hits, an electrifying rendition of single soundtrack classic State of Love and Trust, and even a taster of Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall Part 2. Premium with energy, a seemingly on-form Eddie Vedder breathes fire into what is generally a tight, passionate performance, and his gutsy delivery diverts the ear from the axe work of Stone Gossard and Mike McCready, which surprisingly sounds a touch ropey at times. The fiercely together rhythm section adds spice to a beefy mix, and you can't help but wonder why the mighty Dave Abrazese, playing here like a trooper, was shown the red flannelled card. But a free CD live effort featuring just about every Pearl Jam song you could wish for can't be worth less than 4Ks. A snail humming daughter would get free. But whether this is truly representative of the Pearl Jam live experience is anybody's guess. Most of the UK has not seen them since February 92 and they've scarcely played Europe since. They'll keep us guessing until they eventually fulfil all their promises and haul themselves back over here. Till then, this'll do nicely. The next review is for an album entitled Cortinary by Motley Crue. Reviewed by Dave Reynolds, this gets 3Ks. 
With an album scarcely dent in the charts and the cancellation of a desperately important US tour, the future doesn't look encouraging for Motley Crue. So it's surprising that Cortinary, an off-the-wall collection of solo cuts and unreleased material hanging over from the sessions for the Motley Crue album has been issued at all. Currently only available in Japan, this is very much a record for the crew faithful, and so far as the solo tracks on offer are concerned, it offers a glimpse of just how Messrs 6, Lee, Mars and Karabi could eke out careers individually should they need to. Bassist Nikki Six and drummer Tommy Lee offer up the tastiest morsels, both are pieces firmly entrenched in the industrial culture. Lee's Planet Boom being a hard-hitting slice of groove set up from drum loops recorded for the Motley Crue album. Interestingly, Lee actually contributed to at least two tracks on Nine Inch Nails' The Downward Spiral Sessions. Nikki Six also seems rather fascinated by Trent Reznor's outfit, offering the more volatile and much-anticipated open letter to the Is A Strange Dad titled Father. Six certainly vents his spleen here. Guitarist Mick Mars and vocalist John Karabi offer more traditional fare. Karabi is in fine voice on the piano-friendly ballad's Friends, but it's more Lennon than Tyler, while Mars's contribution Bittersweet is a very average Jeff Beck tribute. The unreleased stuff includes demos of Hammond on the Motley Crue album, previously unheard Living in the Know and 100,000 Miles Away, this lineup's Home Sweet Home, a funky horn-fueled track titled Baby Kills plus the extended Hooligans Holiday. What Cortinary offers hardly justifies the purchase price, yet this could well become a collector's piece. Oh, and well in Japanese culture, the number four is a homonym for death. The next review is for Pitch Shifter vs The Remix Wars by Pitch Shifter. Reviewed by Morat, this gets 3Ks. The rehashed wars, more like it. Just when a Pitch Shifter going to get it together to write some new songs. Desensitized from which these songs are all pilfered is now over a year old. On this mini-album, Pitch Shifter have collaborated with Biohazard Therapy and Rappers Gunshot, getting them to sod around with the originals of songs like Triad, Diable and indeed Triad and Diable, they all seem to have picked the same songs. As such, Therapy's rendering of the colossal Diable stands head and shoulders above the rest, with such excellent use of samples that you wouldn't recognise it as being a work by either band. Gunshot's predictable rappy without the C effort is okay too, while Biohazard's tamperings with Triad are barely noticeable, except in noting that the original was better. Shifter have also had a go at four tracks too, you can guess two of them, the others are MCM and Today's Game, all of which are excellent, but surely the time could have been better spent on giving us some new material. Overall, this is a fine opus that could have been improved with perhaps a Johnny Violent techno mix or a full on metal mix, but the point is, this great band urgently needs some new songs that we haven't already become desensitised to. Get the fuck on with that new album. We now come to this week's cover stars. The only interview. Vital signs. Pearl Jam have suffered media rape, music business bullshit and the pressure of carrying on following the death of Kurt Cobain. How have they done it? As they release their new album Vitology, Paul Elliott provides a no-holds-barred analysis of the traumas of the last two years and narrates Eddie Vedder's only new interview. June 1992. Pearl Jam are in London near the end of their first world tour in support of their multi-million selling debut album 10. At the weekend, they play with a cult in Finsbury Park. We've been on the road a long time, says guitarist Stone Gossard. Every day a new city. You know, wanted dead or alive? That's us. Except grinned second guitarist Mike McCready. We've probably only seen about 250,000 faces and maybe rocked about a third of those. Mike's little dig at Bon Jovi is enjoyed by Stone, bassist Jeff Amen and drummer Dave Abrazese. The four are eating dinner during a break and shooting for the Jeremy video in a big old warehouse close to King's Cross. But Eddie Vedder... Pearl Jam's enigmatic singer is not here. Eddie is alone in another room, getting his head together. 
In an hour, the video crew will begin filming Vedder for solo close-ups, images seen a thousand times on MTV. Jeremy was a breakthrough heavy rotation clip which won 1992's MTV Best Video Award. Eddie Vedder is an intriguing character, so introverted for a rock star. During the Kerrang! interview, which precedes the final few takes, Vedder makes little direct eye contact. Mostly he just stares down at his boots, hair shielding his face. His speech is soft and measured. And yet Eddie Vedder speaks very openly. Interviews can be very therapeutic, he says, gesturing towards the tape recorder beside him. He goes on to recall intimate childhood memories, summing up with a smile, I was a pretty weird kid, I guess. But his most telling comments concern his emergence as a spokesman for the grunge generation. A cliche Eddie was always unhappy with. An American magazine was getting letters. Eddie Vedder for president, he sighs. That's scary. I'm just one guy with honest opinions. April 1994. On the night Kurt Cobain's suicide shocked the world, Pearl Jam played a show in Baltimore, a port city on America's east coast. During an emotionally charged performance, Eddie Vedder said from the stage, none of us would be here tonight if not for Kurt Cobain. On Dissident, Vedder sings, Escape is never the safest path. The next song is Jeremy, the story of a teenage suicide. A kid blew his brains out in front of his English class, Vedder told Kerrang in 92. That probably happens once a week in America. It's a byproduct of America's fascination or rather perversion with guns. In Baltimore, 1994, Jeremy is played at a frantic pace. Seemingly the song's storyline is too close for comfort. The band appears to flinch away from the song until its climactic jam. Jeremy is followed by Glorified G, a plea for gun control. It's kind of tough to play, Mark Zeddy. I personally thought we shouldn't play at all. It's just this real empty feeling. October 1994. Pearl Jam played their last show for many months when they joined Neil Young, Ministry and Tom Petty at San Francisco's Shoreline Amphitheater. The event is a benefit for the Bridge School for the Learning Impaired. Two of Young's kids are afflicted by cerebral palsy. Backstage, Eddie Vedder is anything but the rumoured morose, wine-sodden depressive. He breezes about chatting happily to Petty, Al Jorgensen and many of the Bridge School pupils. He also enjoys a lengthy conversation with punk legend Jello Biafra, uh, ex of the Dead Kennedys, while the unlikely duo of Mike McCready and Metallica's Lars Ulrich discuss health problems. December 1994. Eddie Vedder is still a little spooked. People, the media as much as rock fans, demand a leader for the so-hyped Generation X slacker nation. With Kurt Cobain dead, Eddie Vedder is really feeling the heat. This month, Vedder29 spoke to the Los Angeles Times about the pressure of celebrity, about Kurt Cobain and about the new Pearl Jam album, Vitology. Nothing on the album was written directly about Kurt, Vedder tells the LA Times. I don't feel like talking about Kurt because it might be seen as exploitation, but there might be things in my lyrics that would help you understand the pressures of someone who is on a parallel train. Vedder even draws an analogy between himself, Cobain and folk hero turned murder suspect OJ Simpson. Vedder concludes bitterly, the media scoop out your chest and leave nothing behind. Eddie was on honeymoon in Greece when the Simpson murder media circus started up back in America. The singer wed longtime girlfriend Beth Liebling, a writer in Rome, earlier this year. The couple have been together for around 10 years. Vedder says simply, I don't want any part of the whole celebrity trip. Someone wrote a letter to a magazine recently about Eddie. It's so hard to be a rock star Vedder. He tells the LA Times, well, I just want to clarify. It's not hard to be a rock star if you want to go around fucking women and cleaning a bunch of teenagers for all their dough because they like your band. That's easy. That's playing the game. What's hard is trying to stop playing the game, treating people fairly and with respect. You just feel that after a while you become a commodity rather than a person. It interferes with your life and the music. Vedder also reveals in the LA Times the inspirations behind a handful of songs on Vitology. All that's sacred comes from youth. Dedications naive and true. Not for you.
That song is about how youth is being exploited. I felt like I had become a part of that too. I don't want to be the travelling medicine show where we go out and do the song and dance and someone else drops the back of the wagon and starts selling crap. I don't want to use our music to sell anything or anyone else to use it. Once divided, nothing left to subtract. Some words when spoken can't be taken back. Nothing, man. If you love someone and they love you, don't fuck up because you're left with less than nothing. Relationships can be tough. I put a lot of time into this music. I don't sleep at night. I think I'm probably a very difficult person to deal with. Things never seem to be normal. I think Beth has to deal with a lot. We are all selfish at heart, I guess, but I just know that without her, I'd be a kite without a string and nothing, man. Feder ended the LA Times interview on another personal note. This one's surprisingly upbeat. Sure, I have good days and I've heard Chris and Dave... Uh, I hope they don't mind me repeating this, but I've heard them tell a number of people about all the happy times Kurt had. I'm sure everything wasn't depressing in his life, but it just seems like the negative somehow sticks with us, where the good seems to just bounce off. You feel it for a second, then it's gone. I was trying to analyse it myself the other day. I should learn how to deal with it. Someday I will. It's just that music was the thing that always helped me, and now a lot of my problems seem tied to the music, and that's why it turned your world upside down. There are now another two pages on Pearl Jam in this week's Kerrang. Are Pearl Jam cutting their own throats by fighting concert ticket agents, ignoring the press and MTV and insisting on a vinyl first release of their new album? Chris Watts puts the burning issues to a special Kerrang panel. The Kerrang panel is made up of Steve Tyler, 24-year-old unemployed forklift operator from Barking, Essex, a member of Pearl Jam's official 10 fan club membership, $6 a year. Anton Brooks, Nirvana's publicist, knows Pearl Jam from their earliest trips to the UK and knows the grunge scene like the back of his hand. And guess who the third person is on this Kerrang panel? Corey Clark, Warrior Soul's loudmouth frontman, recently described grunge as miserable slug slow shit. Once claimed to have vented grunge, only to have been overlooked at the starting post. If he doesn't like grunge, why is he on the panel? Jesus Christ. Anyway. Pearl Jam have just released their third record, it's called Vitology. There are 14 new songs in it, and that's the end of the story. I didn't get into this to end up as a face on a fucking billboard, Eddie Vedder once commented. All I ever wanted to do was play music, simple as that. I don't need all this other bullshit. Except that when Pearl Jam release a new record, it can never be that simple. The release of Vitology is an event, and there's nothing Eddie Vedder could do to prevent the circus briefly descending on his world. Last Thursday, 72 independent rock record shops opened at one minute past midnight to sell the first copies of Vitology. The first single, Spin the Back Circle, crashed into the UK rock charts at number one and the national charts at number 10. And all without the aid of such vital promotional tools as MTV Airplay or magazine coverage. It's patently obvious that Vitology is not just another pre-Christmas release for the giant Sony Music Corporation. It's something far bigger. Yet Pearl Jam have deliberately insisted on certain release tactics that could be judged to be either radical or restrictive, depending on your point of view. And everyone has a point of view when it comes to the band who, in the words of Nirvana PR Anton Brooks, are up there alongside God. Pearl Jam have largely declined to discuss Vitology with the international music press. They have refused to furnish MTV with a video. They've refused to furnish their record company with any new promo photographs. They have also insisted that the album be released in two separate stages with CD and cassette formats following a week behind vinyl. Pearl Jam are doing what they can to avoid the usual major album release frenzy. And behind the scenes, they have also taken a tough stance on the traditional touring process. The band are currently talking about a radical shake-up of the lucrative arrangement between the artist, promoter and ticket agent. This may or may not prove to be in the band's best interests. 
So what the fuck is going on with Pearl Jam? And what exactly is their whole beef with an industry that has dutifully delivered their music and ideology to the waiting millions? This is a thin line after all, between artistic integrity and downright commercial suicide. As Steve Tyler pointed out, if Eddie Vedder doesn't want to do this anymore, then why the fuck doesn't he get out and go back to filling up cars with petrol? At the end of the day, can four metalheads and a bleeding heart poet really change a damn thing? The question is at the heart of the Kerrang! Pearl Jam debate. Over to our panel. Vital Vinyl Vitology is undoubtedly an impressive package. Each format comes complete with a 36-page booklet. This includes an open letter to President Clinton, pledging support for the pro-choice lobby and registering disgust at the shooting of David Gunn, a doctor who had performed abortions by pro-life activists. The cost of the Vitology's elaborate packaging has been partly underwritten by Pearl Jam themselves. Final copies of Vitology are released a week in advance of compact discs and cassettes. This, apparently, is simply because the band strongly disagree with the major record label's plan to eventually phase out vinyl altogether. It is a decision which seems to have caused a certain degree of confusion. Steve Tyler I'm unemployed, so I don't have enough money to buy both the record and the CD. My mate is an absolute fanatic, so he'll probably buy the record and I'll tape it off him until the CD is released. In a way, it's a rip-off. The records are not limited or anything, and there's no extra tracks, so there's nothing really there to make collectors rush out and buy it. I think most people will wait a while. Anton Pearl Jam have always had a staunch vinyl ethic, and I think they're right to try and protest at the way the industry, especially in America, is trying to phase out vinyl. There will always be vinyl junkies who just like the look and the sound of a record better than a CD. The intended effect may, however, have backfired slightly. The Central London Tower Records branch on Piccadilly no longer sells vinyl. They did, however, make an exception in the case of Vitology, but will revert back to their original policy once CD and cassette are released. This will not be the only instance of the system thwarting Pearl Jam's honourable intentions. No press. There is silence in the Pearl Jam camp. The release of a record usually prompts even the most reclusive artists to turn to the waiting journalists. Press interviews can help sales and are considerably cheaper than advertising. Pearl Jam rightly claim that they resent being manipulated by the press just to sell magazines. Yet they are still on the cover of this week's Kerrang! So who wins? Anton Brooks. They simply don't need to make a fuss about this album. People will buy it regardless. A lot of bands get bored of interviews and there's usually a photo session thrown in too. People don't realise how long it all takes and let's be honest, interviews can be very dull. Steve Tyler. It seems like they're not trying to make a big deal about the band at all. Yet they're one of the biggest bands in the world and they're trying to tell everyone that they're not. When you get as big as Pearl Jam, you should expect the fuss that goes with it. I think Stone and Jeff just want to get on with it. They're just uh, going with the flow. It's mainly Eddie Vedder. I think they're letting Eddie take over the band. Road to Nowhere Pearl Jam have still not resolved the legal action they filed against the Ticketmaster agency earlier this year. The band were concerned that the concert going public were being overcharged by the largest ticket distributor in the world. Pearl Jam accused Ticketmaster of enjoying a virtual monopoly on the distribution of tickets. As a result, the band claimed that they have been unofficially boycotted from the established concert circuit, a claim Ticketmaster strongly denies. But Pearl Jam are sticking to their guns. They are now talking about setting up their own tour circuit in direct competition, playing concerts in fields and on private land. With the UK's stringent criminal justice laws, Pearl Jam might not be able to play in Britain. Steve Tyler A lot of what the band say is a bit naff really. When Kurt Cobain died and Eddie was cut up, then yeah, okay, that's fair comment. But Eddie's given us aggro. We're the diehard fans who support them, and they're just coming out with all these excuses not to tour. It's like Soundgarden. It's just excuse after excuse after excuse. The bottom line is that we can't get to see them fucking play. Anton Brooks I admire Pearl Jam for taking Ticketmaster on, and a lot of bands have come out in support. Ticketmaster are like the VAT man. For tickets in America, then Ticketmaster rule. 
Simple as that. But Pearl Jam are big enough to do anything they want. They can control their own destiny and this is a value for money issue. Pearl Jam are trying to be conscientious. Corey Clark. Eddie Vedder wants to watch his back man. You don't fuck with Ticketmaster. If people want to watch Pearl Jam, what the hell? Charge them $100. People will still go to the shows. Punk as fuck. So does Pearl Jam's new non-conformist stance mean they have a right to call themselves punk? It is in fact more of a hippie ethic, finding a way to amicably survive as far from the mainstream as possible. Punk was a confrontational fashion. Punk was the Sex Pistols abusing Bill Grundy on live TV. Ironically, the passive hippie was originally the punk's most hated enemy. Corey. Pearl Jam are punk rock. I'm glad they're catching on. Punk's out in the streets. It's in the pubs, man. And I don't see Pearl Jam out there talking to the kids in the pubs like us. If they're punk, then show me the proof. Where are the photos? Maybe they've just been reading England's Dreamin'. Anton, they've always had that punk ethic. I think it's a question of being in control. Sure, they could change the system if enough people got behind them. Steve Tyler, Pearl Jam are not punk. Not like the Sex Pistols. I thought punk was funny. A laugh. A lot of it was a rip-off too. Spin the Black Circle was certainly different, but it wasn't a punk song. So what? Pearl Jam wants to fight the establishment and challenge a few preconceptions concerning a multi-platinum rock band. Ultimately, no one wants to see Eddie Vedder as Coco the Fighting Clown, but Vitology will sell hundreds of thousands of units no matter how hard Pearl Jam takes steps to prevent its exploitation. In the words of Clash main man Joe Strummer, punk's proto-subversive, I fought the law and the law won. Anton Brooks, I think they're trying to take a few steps back and redefine exactly what Pearl Jam as a band can do. They're trying to regain some of the credibility they feel they might have lost by becoming so big. I think that's all they're trying to do. Chart Attack and number one in the album chart this week is Unplugged in New York by Nirvana. Number one in the indie album charts is Space Age Playboys by Warrior Soul and number one in the singles chart is Spin the Black Circle by Pearl Jam. The reader's chart this week is Mark Williams from Mick Morgan. Mark's chart begins one Pleasure Palace House of Lords, two Who Wants to be Lonely Kiss, three Shame 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 Rap, four Riot Blue Murder, five Love You to Death Judas Priest, six Sweet Obsession Bonfire, seven Slip of the Tongue White Snake, eight I Had Too Much to Dream Doro Pesh, nine Ragdoll Aerosmith and ten Do I Belong Kingdom Come. And the star tracks this week come from Marty Friedman of Megadeth. His chart begins one Road to Ruin the Ramones, two Alive Kiss, three Taken by Force of Scorpions, 4. Sabotage Black Sabbath 5. Euthanasia Megadeth In next week's episode of Kerrang! Back Issues It's a schmoozathon Therapy and a cast of thousands storm MTV's European Music Awards The Big K goes along for the ride and the lager Meet Page and Plant Win FM's guitar and Pearl Jam swag Plus Freak of Nature hit the UK Pantera hit Australia And the Wild Hearts hit everyone also, a sensational money off video offer. £5 off the Hard and Heavy Platinum Collection. A video collection so heavy your eyes will drop off or something. See next week's Kerrang! for a jaw dropping, wallet crushing deal. Kerrang!'s Value for Mayhem campaign continues. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we will be back next Wednesday as usual. And um, yeah, hope you're all doing well and talk to you all soon. Bye for now. <laughs>